0: joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. If you haven't turned there already, I'll give you a moment to do so. If you would like a Bible, there are some in the back. Someone, if you raise your hand, will bring one to you. Again, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Now, concerning the matter about which she wrote, it is good for a man to, ha- to not have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife." But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you have saved your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord.
1: shades. I am uh, excited about today for a number of reasons, but one of them is this is the first Sunday since December the 17th that my entire family is here because we are all well. So (laughs) I am very thankful, very thankful for that. I missed being with you all uh, last week. If you don't know, I was on my study week, which is just a wonderful gift that y'all give each year, time to get away, to think, to pray, to plan. Um, And Grant did a fantastic job last week. I I told him that I listened to his sermon uh, earlier uh, this week on Monday and that it was just good for my soul. If you were here, he just talked about um, our identity in Christ and just helped us to kind of sit in that and reflect on that. I told him, I listened to that and I was like, man, my soul needed that. And then I opened it up. I opened up the word, excited to see what I got to preach on this week. Yay. No, what's here is good too, because we know that the entire letter of 1 Corinthians is a call to embrace our identity in Christ. It's a call to be who we are. It's a call to be saints, and that includes with regard to our sexuality, which is what Paul's going to continue to talk about right here through chapter 7. So parents, this is your warning. If your kiddos are still in the sanctuary with you, we are going to talk a lot about sex and sexuality this morning. So let me pray for us. And we'll dive in together. Father, I am grateful. Grateful that your word doesn't shy away from anything. Wades into deep and difficult waters with goodness and grace. I pray that your spirit would apply these words to our heart in a way that is healing and hopeful. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. I do invite you to open to 1 Corinthians 7 if you haven't had the opportunity yet. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Lent. Lent, if you're not familiar, it is a season of repentance and fasting that is designed to help lead us to Easter. But here's the deal. Uh, All too often practices such as fasting, fasting is what's known as uh, an ascetic practice. Ascetic practices or asceticism, these are are practices of self-denial for a spiritual purpose. And the problem is is that all too often, such ascetic practices can actually lead us in the opposite direction from Easter. Because often people embrace such practices as a means of trying to achieve a, a higher spiritual state. I'm going to fast, I'm going to do these things in order to to truly be set apart unto the Lord. But that's the exact opposite of Easter. Easter is a celebration not of what we've achieved, but of what Christ has achieved. And it's what he has done, it's what he has achieved that truly sets us apart as saints. That's what the word word saints means, is those who are set apart. And that, that shade is an identity that you receive, it is not one that you achieve fasting is not meant, Christian fasting is not meant to earn anything. It's meant to express something. Fasting during the season of Lent is not us trying to earn God's favor or earn his love or earn his forgiveness. Fasting is us expressing our desire for him. It's, it's making the external line up with the internal. I have an internal hunger and desire for God, and I express that externally. It's an expression of our spiritual hunger and desire for Christ. And here's the deal, Shades like we can't afford to misunderstand asceticism. Because that's precisely what the Corinthians were doing. During the season of Lent, we're going to continue the journey that we've been on through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And right here, chapter 7, it's the perfect place for us to begin this season because here we encounter the Corinthians' confusion over asceticism. Read with me, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he quotes them, what they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, if you've been with us up to this point in the letter, Paul's been addressing things that he's heard are happening amongst the corinthians but now he shifts he shifts to to answer some questions that they apparently had written him a letter asking and he starts with a question that has a natural connection to what he just talked about at the end of chapter 6 do you remember in chapter 6 verses 12 to 20 paul had heard that some of the men in the church were participating in their city's sin of prostitution and Paul looks at those men in chapter 6 and he says, no, your body's not your own. God made your body. Christ bought you, body and soul, with his blood, and your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You belong, your body belongs to the triune God. So he ends the chapter saying, so glorify God in your body by fleeing from sexual immorality. That's what he has just said. And now he turns to a question that connects, because this question is also about sex and sexuality. Apparently, what we see right here through this question is that some of the Corinthian men have taken the opposite view of what we encountered in chapter 6. Chapter 6, we had some Corinthian men saying, spirituality, it's just a spiritual thing. The body doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want to with my body. I can sleep with whoever I want to. And here, apparently, we've got some people taking the opposite view. No, the body does matter. And sex is actually something that defiles. So we need to not sleep with anybody at all. In other words, we have men who are embracing a vow of celibacy. That's an ascetic practice. It's a part of asceticism, it's been a part of asceticism throughout the history of the church because of misunderstandings of things like 1 Corinthians 7 where people actually think that Paul is promoting celibacy as a superior spiritual state. So, monks, nuns, priests, etc. self-denial for the sake of trying to achieve a superior spirituality. We shouldn't be surprised to find this kind of diversity of opinion in Corinth, like some people being like, sleep with whoever you want, and others being like, don't sleep with anybody at all. shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, the first thing that we learned about this church when we began reading this letter is how divided they are. All throughout this letter, we're going to see they're divided over all sorts of things. Leaders, lawsuits, sex, food sacrifice to idols, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, pick a topic. Like the Corinthians are divided and fighting over everything. So right after addressing those who've been sleeping with prostitutes, Paul turns to the other side to keep them from misapplying what he just said. He just said, flee sexual immorality. It would be very easy for the ascetics to go, see, we're right. Flee sexual immorality. It is good for a man not to have any sexual relations with a woman. So, in verse 1, Paul quotes them, in order to correct them. We saw him do that all throughout chapter 6. He continues it right here in chapter 7. He quotes them to correct them, and then he applies his correction to situations of marriage and situations of singleness. This morning, we're going to focus on situations of marriage because those are the matters that Paul tackles first. He tackles matters of marriage in order to emphasize that marriage matters. He's going to do the same thing with singleness. He will tackle matters of singleness because singleness matters. We're going to get there in the coming weeks. But he starts with marriage because that's where the primary problem is that needs correcting. So, for the rest of this morning, let's see Paul's correction and then his three applications that he makes to marriage. First, the correction. Which I'm gonna sum up this way. Flee sexual immorality for faithfulness. Flee sexual immorality, but lest they misunderstand that, misapply it, here comes the correction. Flee sexual immorality to go towards something, towards what? Faithfulness. Verses one and two. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. What we have going on here, apparently, is there are men within the Corinthian church embracing some form of an ascetic celibacy vow, even if they're married. Like, forget about the opinion of their wives— They've decided it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, sorry, honey, never mind my commitment to you. I'm going to achieve a higher state of spirituality. And here's the deal, all right? Not only were they not considering their wives at all, but if they did decide that they needed to have a sexual outlet, they used prostitution so they could keep their vow of celibacy, you know, because prostitution doesn't count. You're like, where is that in the text? I think you see it more clearly if we take verse 2 and do a very literal translation. So here's a very literal translation for you of verse 2. He quotes them, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, and then he says, to the contrary, on account of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband on account of the sexual morality that you are embracing. He's just described for us what that is. Just a few verses ago in chapter six, sleeping with prostitutes, he's like, on account of the fact that you're willing to embrace that. These men were being celibate with their wives, but prostitution was fine for an outlet of pleasure. They would have thought that way because their culture thought that way. Listen to the Athenian statesman, Demosthenes, quite respectably, he says this. I mean that as sarcastically as I can. Demosthenes says, this is what living with a woman as one's wife means. Please tell me, Demosthenes. To have children by her. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, but wives to bear us legitimate children. In Greco-Roman culture, the only purpose of sexual relations in marriage was to produce legitimate heirs. Pleasure was a totally separate thing that was to be sought outside of marriage altogether. As a matter of fact, Bruce Winter, credible Greco-Roman scholar, he says that it was not uncommon for wives on their wedding day to be reminded when your husband commits adultery, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's just because men have sexual needs and he's got to fulfill those somehow. This is the culture that the Corinthians are swimming in. And so you can see how very quickly they embrace some twisted kind of thinking. I can be celibate with my wife, and if I need some pleasure, my culture says it's fine to get that elsewhere. In other words, wives were expected to be faithful, but husbands, they just got sexual needs that justify infidelity. Shades, there are many in our culture that promote that exact same thing now you familiar with the trend of what are quote-unquote called alpha male influencers on social media there's quite a number of podcasts they like to appeal to young men as if they are purporting some incredible vision for masculinity and one of their main tenets is this you need to expect your woman your girlfriend your wife whoever to be faithful but you you have needs and it's fine to meet those however Into this first century and 21st century confusion, Paul drops a revolutionary bomb of mutuality and marriage. Look at it at verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't misunderstand Paul. He's correcting the husbands right here. He looks at these husbands and says, you are cheating your wife of what's theirs. What's theirs? You are. Haven't you read Song of Solomon 6 verse 3? I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That is revolutionary mutuality in marriage. No one thought this way in the ancient world. New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton, he says this, he says, Paul appears to be the first writer to suggest pleasure could be mutual in marriage. It wasn't that you didn't have other ancient writers that talked about sexual pleasure, they did. But no one talked about the need for it to be mutual in marriage. That's why Paul begins verse 5 with the words, do not deprive one another. No, no. Aim at the pleasure of the other. Give yourselves to one another. That's literally the word he uses in verse 3. Husbands should give. Wives should give. We should lovingly aim at the pleasure of the other. In a a culture of self-centered, selfish sex, Paul drops a bomb of selfless love. What's sad, what's sad is that these verses in our modern context have all too often been abused by men in the church to do the opposite of what Paul is aiming to do. These verses have been used by men to demand selfish Self-centered sex. Particularly verse 4. Look at it again. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. I've seen, I've seen, husbands use this verse to bully their wives concerning their sex life. Shades may it never be. The irony is that these verses have the opposite aim. Because the point point that Paul is making comes next. Likewise. Every husband would have assumed that first statement in Corinth. The bomb, the point, is what's next. Likewise, husbands do not have authority over their own body, but the wife does. You should both meet each other's needs because you both belong to each other. Husbands, she doesn't just belong to you to meet your needs. You belong to her to meet hers. Paul's point is mutuality. Paul's point is to protect the wife's rights. For for husbands to make this about demanding their rights is the exact opposite of Paul's aim. It it's like um, it's like on Saturday mornings when we let our kids have a significant amount of screen time, and I uh, I give them a rule that they have to take turns picking what show they're watching. I do that so that none of them get to dominate. Screen time, that's my aim. But a certain child who shall remain unnamed loves to manipulate her younger brothers into picking shows that she prefers, precisely so that she does get to dominate screen time. She's using my instructions to do the exact thing my instructions aim to prevent. Husbands, don't do that with 1 Corinthians 7. These verses are not designed to help you make demands of your wife. They are designed to call you to selflessly love her. Specifically, Paul's telling these Corinthian men to be faithful in the marital state they are in by focusing on their wife's needs not their own. For them, that meant, guys, you can't just take a vow of celibacy while cheating with prostitutes as if you have all authority over your own body. No, your body belongs to your bride. What you're doing, Paul is saying, is not achieving a higher spiritual state. No, if you actually want to live as a saint, flee sexual immorality for faithfulness. That's what it means to be a saint with regard to sexuality. It doesn't mean trying to achieve a higher spiritual state. It means be faithful in the state you're in. Married, be faithful in that. If you're single, be faithful in that. Be faithful right where you are because you are God's saint right where you are. There's nothing you have to do to achieve being a saint. Christ did it all. You are a saint right where you are is to be faithful right where you are. That's Paul's point throughout the entirety of the chapter and he makes it first about marriage because these Corinthian men are misunderstanding asceticism, trying to use it in order to achieve being a saint. And Paul says, no. Now, quick little sub-point because Paul makes a sub-point. Paul does have a place for ascetic practices, including... Abstaining from sex within marriage. But he's very careful with how he talks about it. Look at verses 5 and 6. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, notice the mutuality, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's a realist. Now as a concession, not as a command... I say this, verse six right there, it goes with verse five, not with verse seven. In other words, Paul is saying, this isn't a command. I'm I'm not saying that you ever have to do this. I'm not saying you've got to have times where you abstain. But what I'm saying, what I'm conceding, is that if you and your wife decide together, mutually, if you decide to fast from physical intimacy together, for a spiritual purpose. What spiritual purpose? He talks about that, not so that they can earn something from God, but so that they can express something to God. Fasting is a, is a focused time of expressing something to the Lord in prayer. That's what Paul says. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It's like, if you want to do that, then that's okay. Any couples volunteering to do this for Lent? Is this your Lent fasting kind of thing right here? Show of hands. Nobody? Okay. Okay. Just checking. Even in this concession right here, Paul is cautious. He says it's got to be mutually agreed upon. It's got to be for a limited time, and then you need to come together again. Why? Because he doesn't want to give the enemy any potential for temptation. Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's what Paul's been observing. Married men, vowing celibacy, and then giving in to temptation outside of marriages. So he says, if, if you and your wife want to fast like that on occasion, do it wisely, do it faithfully. Flee sexual immorality for faithfulness. That's the correction that he makes. And now Paul is going to apply that correction to three different marriage situations. Marriage situations that the Corinthians may feel they need to change in order to become more spiritual, more of a saint. But in all of the different marriage situations, Paul is going to say, no, you're God's saint right where you are. Being a saint is not something you have to achieve. It's something you've received, and he can empower you to live faithfully right where you are. Let's see Paul's three applications together. Application number one, faithfulness in widowhood. Faithfulness in widowhood. It makes sense that Paul would talk to widows and widowers first. I mean, he's just, he's just been affirming sexual faithfulness in marriage. So those who likely have the largest questions would be those who had once been married, but now their spouse has passed away. What, what, what about us, Paul? How do we do this without a spouse? How do we flee sexual immorality for Faithful, without a spouse, are we second-class citizens when it comes to God-glorifying faithfulness with our bodies? Paul answers, not at all. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul's single. Whether he's always been single or whether he is a widower himself, we do not know, but he's single. And after extolling marriage, he says something that blows our minds. I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul's got a personal preference for singleness. And he doesn't want anyone to think of singleness as second-class citizens in the kingdom. So right here, he holds singleness up high, just like he's done with marriage. He doesn't set marriage over singleness, and he doesn't set singleness over marriage. He knows that both are gifts from God. That's the next thing out of his mouth. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Singleness, marriage, Paul says both are good gifts from God. We'll talk more about what that means in two weeks. But right now, singles, I just want you to see you are not second-class citizens of the kingdom. You are God's saint right where you are. You do not need to achieve a different marital status in order to be able to completely glorify God. You are capable of God-glorifying faithfulness by the power of the Spirit. Specifically, in verses 8 and 9, this is what Paul wants widows and widowers to see. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows. I think that should read to widowers and to widows. I think that for a number of reasons, the word for widower was passing out of usage at this point in Greek. The word unmarried right there, it's plural, masculine, to refer specifically to men who are single. This is all in a section where Paul is talking about marriage, and he specifically addresses widows think this is meant to be and and he's going to address singles for the entire latter half of the chapter for all those reasons i think this should read to widowers and the widows i say that it's good for them to remain single as i am but if they cannot exercise self-control better translation if they are not controlling themselves they should marry it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Don't misunderstand Paul right here. He is saying something that is crazy countercultural in his day. In his day, remarriage would not only be expected for a widow or widower, it would be societally pressured. Like widows, especially, were looked down on by society as second class citizens, put on the margin of society. And Paul says, No, your singleness is not a scarlet letter, but something good and God-glorifying. You're a saint right where you are, and you can faithfully, fully serve the Lord. But, but, Paul says, if they are not controlling themselves, in other words, If like the married men that we just discussed, they're participating right now in sexual immorality as a kind of outlet. If that's what they're doing, they should remarry. Marriage matters. Marriage is the proper context for that. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, singleness is good, but don't think that it makes you spiritually superior so that you stay single even if you're indulging in sexual immorality. That has been a common mistake throughout church history. To value singleness and celibacy, I know it's not the state of the Protestant church right now, but go back just a little ways in church history, and those who vowed to be celibate were seen as spiritually superior. And often, in order, if you took a vow of celibacy in order to achieve superior spirituality, sexual morality was not far behind. There's there's a quick Google search in a million court cases will show you that to be the case. Paul says that's not faithfulness. If you're going to have sex, Paul says marriage is the only place to do so faithfully. Marriage matters. In other words, if Paul were talking to widows and widowers today, he'd probably say it something like this. It's not cool to have a traveling companion or a live-in friend. Faithfulness should be your aim. Chase, to everybody here who's been married before, but you find yourself single again, Paul's primary point is this. God-glorifying faithfulness is possible for you. You're God's saint right where you are not in need of changing your status so that you can glorify God. Faithfulness is not only possible in widowhood, Paul says it's beautiful, it's good. Application number two, faithfulness in marriage between believers. Faithfulness in marriage between believers. So as you study this chapter, it would seem that in Corinth it's likely that not only are some taking vows of celibacy within marriage, but others are actually leaving their marriages since they thought that a celibate life, single life was spiritually superior, leading them to divorce their wives. And, And now that Paul has just upheld the beauty of singleness, he doesn't want anyone twisting his words as justification for divorce, so that's exactly where he goes next. Verse 10. To the married, I give this charge not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So, Paul, right here, what he does is he goes back to the teachings of Jesus. That's, that's what he means when he says, not I but the Lord. He's saying, I'm referencing teaching that we all know from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't quote everything that Jesus had to say about divorce and remarriage, because Paul's not trying to say everything that there is to say about divorce and remarriage. He's making a specific point about the Corinthian situation. Namely, divorce should not be the Corinthian's aim. Faithfulness in marriage is the aim. Divorce was common in the Greco-Roman world, and it was easy, easier than it is now. You didn't even have to like fill out any paperwork. All you had to do was be like, I'm out, peace, and leave, over. It was common, and it was easy. And apparently... With the Corinthians' misunderstanding of sexuality, there were many couples divorcing in the name of spirituality. But Paul says that's not the way things were designed to be. Wives shouldn't separate. Corizo. It's a synonym for divorce. Do not read a modern concept of legal separation into Paul's words right here. The Roman world did not know of such a thing. He's saying wives shouldn't divorce their husbands. And if they have, if you've already done that for these reasons, Corinth, then your aim should be reconciliation. Same goes for husbands, he says. Paul is not trying to describe or to address every situation. He knows. He knows that there are legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. He knows that Jesus taught that. Jesus gave adultery as a legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. Paul himself is about, in just a few verses, to make an exception concerning abandonment. And if you if you want to, you can go back to a sermon that I preached here on November the 8th of 2015, and you can hear my argument there concerning not just Adultery, not just abandonment, but different kinds of abuse as biblical grounds for divorce. That sermon, if you want to search for it, is entitled Divorce, Remarriage, and the Gospel. And there I do try to lay out the entirety of what Scripture is saying on the subject and try to walk us through some very careful applications. But that's not what Paul is doing right here. Here he is giving us the primary principle about marriage between believers namely, they should aim to be faithful. He's saying, married people, your marriage matters. Don't seek singleness. Seek faithfulness. And notice, notice, you got to keep this in mind anytime you're reading anything in scripture. Notice he's calling for that marital faithfulness in front of the community. This letter would be read aloud. And it's like, like, we read it out loud and teach it out loud here. He's calling for that faithfulness in front of the community because faithfulness in marriage is something we need community for. That's true of singleness, too. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Singleness and singleness needs community, too. But right here, married couples, I want to ask you, who's helping you pursue faithfulness in your marriage? Marriages that isolate are marriages that fail. And marriages can fail in more ways than Divorce. I've met many married people who were more roommates than anything else. Who's helping you pursue faithfulness? Do you you have someone in this community that you've invited into your mess? Because we all got it. Like you're not alone, like Holly and I have people in this community that we invite into our mess. Do you have do you have a marriage counselor? Like literally, we should be able to go around the room and every couple name their marriage counselor. You know why? Because all of you could name your dentist and your marriage is more important than your teeth. People will be like, I can't do marriage counseling. I can't afford it. Take out a loan. You do it for more or less important things like homes and cars, all of which you'll lose if your marriage fails. Don't buy the Corinthians lie that you could be more spiritual by leaving your husband or wife. No, you are God's saint right where you are. And faithfulness is possible by his power. Application number three. Faithfulness in marriage with an unbeliever. Faithfulness in marriage with an unbeliever. So, so all of the Corinthians who had converted to Christianity, obviously they're adults when they do so, and they're converting out of pagan backgrounds. And so clearly you're going to end up with a number of situations where one person converts, but their spouse does not. What are they supposed to do? I mean, just a few paragraphs ago in chapter 6, Paul said, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is something Holy something meant to be kept clean. It'd be very easy for the Corinthians to think, I probably shouldn't unite that temple with somebody who's unbelieving, right? So maybe I should divorce my unbelieving spouse. I mean, Jesus never gave instructions about this kind of situation. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul does. Look at verse 12. To the rest, so to all those others who were married out there, to an unbelieving spouse, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. What he means is, I don't, we don't have any teaching from Jesus on this subject. It doesn't mean this isn't scripture that's coming at you. It just means I'm not quoting Jesus no more. To the rest, I say, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What does Paul mean? He doesn't mean that an unbelieving spouse and kids are automatically saved because of the presence of a believer in the house. No, he's using Old Testament temple language right here of clean and unclean. What you have to understand is basically in the Old Testament, if something clean came into contact with something that was unclean, it was the uncleanliness that spread. This thing, not considered clean anymore. Got to go through a purification process. That's what the Corinthians are worried about. If our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, will my unsaved spouse's spiritual uncleanness, will that spread to me? Paul says, no. The opposite is more likely because of Christ. Shades when Christ, who's the true temple, the true presence of God on earth, when that true temple of Christ came into contact with those that were unclean, it was his cleanness that spread. And the same is now true of the people he indwells, they spread him. Paul says, that great when you're married to an unbeliever? Not to divorce them for the sake of preserving your own faith, but to love them faithfully in hopes of spreading your faith to them and their children. Marriage matters. Okay, Paul. But what if they leave? What if they don't stay? And I can't influence them. What what then? Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. It's not bound. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul says it's okay to let them go that's what they choose. Do you hear what he said? Man, I hope this brings some freedom for some people today. He says, don't wear the weight of their salvation on your shoulders so that you fight and you scrape and you claw to keep them as if their salvation depends on you. You, you can't know. That's what he says in verse 16. You can't know if your influence will lead to their salvation. You, you aim for it too, but you cannot wear that weight as if it is ultimately up to you. And if they go, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you weren't faithful. Don't, don't punish yourself. You're not enslaved, meaning it's okay to get remarried to another believer. You, you're free. Shades, as you step back and you begin to see the entire picture of everything that Paul is saying, do, do you see? He's saying, no matter where you find yourself with regards to marriage, widow, remarried widow, in a marriage that's hard, in a marriage with an unbeliever who stays with you on where they leave you, no matter where you find yourself with regards to marriage, you can be faithful right where you are because you are God's saint right where you are. Being a saint is not something that you achieve, it's something that you have received. And that identity, it can be lived out faithfully, whether you're widowed, divorced, Married, remarried, none of you are second-class citizens in the kingdom because there is no such thing as second-class citizens in the kingdom. There are only saints, and that's who you are, right where you are. So Paul calls us to be who we are. Let's pray. Father, I ask the goodness of your word by the power of your spirit sink deep into our hearts all the way down to our toes that it bring healing and life and fill us with your love and your grace and show us that no matter what we have been through in life with regards to marriage that there is nothing that we have to earn or change about where we find ourselves right now in order to be your saint. We're your saint because you say we are. Father, I pray that you would give us a vision, a vision that we can fulfill your purpose on our life just by being faithful right where we're at. Father, I ask that every person, regardless of what they have experienced, would know who they are because of what you have done in your son. Pray that everyone would embrace their identity as a saint and that by your spirit we'd be empowered to be who we are. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus.
0: To the world in peace have courage hold on to what is good honor all men strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak help the suffering and share the gospel love and serve the lord in the power of the holy spirit and may the grace of our lord jesus christ be with us all amen